From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is the Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and I'm here at Learning Solutions in Orlando with Bob Mosier. Bob is a well-known leader in the learning and training industry for over 30 years. He's renowned for his pioneering role in e-learning and new approaches to learning and performance support. He's currently the chief learning evangelist at Apply Synergies. And before that, he was a learning leader at Microsoft and Element K. He's worked with many Fortune 500 companies, including McDonald's, Bank of America, Disney University, just to name a few. He's a member of our board of visitors at the Defense Acquisition University, who produces the program you're listening to right now. And he's the co-author of two books, Training for Results and Innovative Performance Support, subtitled Tools and Strategies for Learning in the Workflow. I'm delighted to have him with us today. Bob, welcome to the Learning Circle. Thanks, Anthony. It's great being here. Appreciate the opportunity. Happy to have you. Now, you are a particular expert in performance support, and there's an idea that we hear a lot in our industry, this idea of the point of need, Mm -hmm. meeting the learner at their point of need, that moment when a learner seeks and finds the resource that will help them to apply what they've learned right when they need to. And my question is related to this idea of workflow learning. We hear that word actually at DAU. It's built into what we call our acquisition learning model. And I wonder if we can begin right there. What is workflow learning and how does it fit into the bigger context? Yeah, it's a tremendous question, and I, and I think that pivoting on context is really important here because, to me, workflow learning is not something we as learning and development professionals do. It's something that a learner does. And so coming at it from that regard, I think it has a much broader definition than to a learner than I think our industry has cast on it. To a, to a learner, workflow learning is it's almost, frankly, transparent or intrinsic to the environment of the workflow. It's, it's the ability for a learner to not to get all the aspects of what to them learning is so that they can perform well. So it doesn't necessarily mean just training. It may mean uh, coaching. It may mean a support resource. It, it may mean to, to learn something that I did not know before. Um, but it really is the idea of me as a learner having the appropriate assets at my disposal in a contextual way that I perform what I'm doing well. But I learn to grow as a performer and become better at that. You know, the lifelong learning we threw around for years in our industry for a long time, never yes. liked it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's this grandiose thing. I mean, who's not or you're dead, right, kind of a thing? Yes. I think workflow learning for me is a much better moniker to go under because it really pinpoints this idea of, yeah, we're lifelong learners, I get that. But the reality is um, in the workflow and, and it being a better performer for my organization, having ways that enable me to do that in the context of my work. I think every learner does it, whether we help them with it or not. To your point of where the DAU's gone with it is, and organizations are starting to go with it, is what the challenge is to us as an L&D industry is that we can also enable that better for them. You know, they're, they're doing it in spite of us. Learners always have, or they would not be employed, is frankly my opinion. But I love that we're pivoting as an industry on workflow learning now as something we 
can help enable. And, and I think that's, I think that's where we want to go. Yeah. Before it would seem like something behind the curtain, right? right. Back, back in the workaday reality yeah, yeah. where we were more focused on formal events and, and all exactly. that. And kind of chuck them back there. But yeah, that's a great way to help us understand that. And it seems more concrete than the idea of lifelong yeah. learning. What did that mean? And I think, and I think it's challenging us as an industry because it's, it's to my point about always taking the learner's perspective is they don't see it as an event. You don't come into work to, well, I'll learn at nine o'clock. You know, I come into work to perform, and therefore, in the, in the context of what that workday may be, I'm going to have to engage in some degree of learning and or support, right? And so, so I think it's challenging us as learning professionals when we look at it from that regard is, okay, look, if I, if I look at what I have as, as my learning toolkit, does it fit in that context? I think a lot of learning organizations are finding that, that the event-based model the, they'll log on my LMS and take five courses model. They'll run off and find a coach that maybe or be available or not model are okay, but highly limiting in the context of what the performer really needs in yeah. workflow learning. It seems more like a more authentic form of distributed learning. It really, right? really is. It brings you it, back into your context. Brilliant. And you're touching things that maybe the formal event was helpful, but now you're touching it again and again until it sticks. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. So how do we reconcile the role of formal learning events, whether it's classroom or mm -hmm. e-learning or some kind of blend, those things that actually pull us out of the work context for a time? How do we reconcile the value of those things with workflow learning? Is it one versus the other, or do they integrate? How, how do you reconcile them? Well, I love that question. It, it's, it's actually a total compliment, in my opinion. And I think it helps us put, when we open up our, our design models and our deliverables to include workflow learning, we have found it has a profound impact on how we look at what we used to call a learning event. You know, before we opened our intentional work to workflow learning, we we were a one-hit wonder. I'll be honest. We had learning events. I don't compare. You can digitize them. You can virtualize them. You can you can mentorize them. You know, whatever you want to call them. But the bottom line is, they were something that took people out of the workflow, either cognitively, i.e., e-learning, frankly, or physically, i.e., you and I are in Orlando, right, at this event. Yes. But that, that's not workflow learning. And, and therefore, what the event had to do, in my opinion, was carry way too much weight and responsibility for what we'll talk about in a bit, the five moments of learning need, than it needed to or should have. And therefore, it, it, took a, it took a hit often because it just can't do all of those things. You, yes. you roll workflow learning into this as a complement to an event-based model, and all of a sudden, it, it puts a whole different onus and response and level of responsibility and it, and also degree of freedom on what the event has to do. You know, if I can, if I can move true learning to certain learning, certain learning, we'll talk more about that in a moment, but certain learning and certain support to the workflow that the classroom or the event used to have to own, all of a sudden this event is freed from that and is able to do what events do best, right? The intimacy, the, the adaptiveness. The experiential side of them, the, the safe side of what an event is compared to the workflow. The degree of bringing mentors and peers and cohorts together. These are things that workflow has, but isn't by its nature designed to do. But the poor classroom, because it's burdened with all this other stuff that it has to cover, has not been freed or allowed to enable those really powerful characteristics of what, of what an event can be. So you bring workflow learning in as, oh, I really hate this term because I think it's overplayed, the, the blend, 
mm-hmm. right? Um, then you really have got something powerful. Viewed in isolation, I think you do a disservice to both. You're taking burden off the classroom, and similar to the concept of flipping mm-hmm. elements, you're sort of flipping it forward, or you're into, yes. you're creating training that's intentional with that goal of supporting the worker in their context, right? So you're really right. working beyond the curtain, as I called it a little bit earlier. Well, you, know, you know what I do sometimes? I show, when, when, I'm, when I'm trying to help an L&D, L&D professional understand this better, I show them what performance, and we talked about performance support earlier, that, mm-hmm. I, you know, that it's one of my passions, because it is the tool, it's the hammer of carpentry, right? Yes. So I show them an EPSS, Electronic Performance Support System, or these are the things we build in the performance support domain, like you build a classroom informal or e-learning informal. I show the a finished, well-architected EPSS to a learning professional. Mm-hmm. I say, okay, look, if you had this, if you had this at your disposal for whatever you're about to teach, acquisition, leadership, how would you, what would the class then look like? If, if, you, if you knew you, that your learner would have this contextually architected, immediate two clicks, two seconds resource when they go back to work, how would you then architect the classroom experience, knowing you had this fallback in the workflow to the, this huge, powerful tool. If your answer is, why well, I'd still just teach the way I do, you're, going, you're not getting it. Right, right. right. But what I find, Anthony, is people see these tools and go, oh my gosh. Well, the first thing they say, I wouldn't cover half the stuff I do now. Mm-hmm. Because why, why should I? I mean, this thing covers it. And it covers it brilliantly when people need it. So why would I, t- you know, six months removed... Cover those things. Mm-hmm. That simple thing in itself changes the nature of what the classroom becomes, or the event in general becomes. Yeah, and you you optimize the use of the classroom then. <laughs> Thank goodness. And I've been yes. at it 33 years. I've been looking for that for... Because in my 33 years, the classroom has been asked to do more with less than it ever has been. And so therefore, our, it, it, it has been, without performance support, a model of compression, not a model of decompression, right? So Because more and less, Right. But if I have more and less but can move some of that more, a good part of that more, out to the workflow, then it's not a model of compression anymore. Yes. It's a model of, I love your word, it's a model of optimization. This idea of what you've just described, has it been kicking around a long time <laughs> with technology needing to catch up to it, or is, well, it, or is it new? It's spectacular. I, I, you know, it's been around, it, people, people, although there's argument as to where, but I think a, a pivoting point for many of us was a woman named Gloria Geary in 1991 wrote a, a landmark book, in my opinion, called Electronic Performance Support System. The acronym was coined, but 1991, right? Quite a while ago. Mm-hmm. I love your, your point about technology. I think, Gloria might, might also agree to this, that like anything, it's about a moon's aligning, you know, and, and to build an EPSS in 1991 was a million dollar investment to do a very simple right. thing, right? Well, now with where we are now, I think technology has been the enabler. I think it's been the pivot where technology has gone, has e-learning and then the, when the ground that broke, the internet that came along with that, LMS, you know, all the stuff that came along with that. Um, although performance support is not e-learning, but but what that opened the door to to enable what EPSS and performance support can do, I think that has been what has gotten this around. It's interesting I, when I do the when I do workshops and such, depending on the age and tenure of the audience, some people come up and say, "Bob, you know, weren't we talking about this back in?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah, you know, but but like anything, hula hoop or light bulb, you know, at the time and just." Too many distractions, too many things not quite right that I think in the last five to seven years, it's exploded in ways I have never seen before. 
It's amazing, but it's true. Things have to align. They do. You have to get to that place where all of it works as a system or it really can't work. In our business, learners are conservative. Learning is a conservative industry, in my opinion. You know, we're not risk of, we're risk averse mm-hmm. um, for a lot of important reasons because what we, the burden we carry is big. But at the same time, you know, just to, when, when, when there aren't enough of those things aligned, the, the risk to change, the risk to try, it was too great. I think uh, the, uh, much has happened in the last five to seven to ten years that has alleviated many of yeah. those risks. I felt that way, too. Not, and it's not just government. I see the learning industry, like you're saying, is kind of a lagging adopter. Absolutely. You know, for There's the, no doubt. What shakes out in the marketplace, and that's a good thing, really. Mm-hmm. You know, you see what is tried and true, and then you begin to yeah. build a, a system. And the, st- and the stakes are high for what we do, right? Yeah. We, we're, we're, we're the, we, are the, we are the sponsors, right, of... Of, of people performing well in, in some very important, you know, military government type stuff or corporate. So the risk of failure yes. is important. So, so we have a responsibility to be careful. Yes. So what about those points of need? I believe you yep. identify five moments, you call them moments, that trace the journey to become competent and to retain competency. What are those moments? Yeah, well, yeah. and, and I, again, I, I love the, the, the insight of your question because I love the word, I love pivoting on competence. You know, when I got in this business years ago, in the early stages of the five moments, as I'll explain them in a moment, really, although we throw jargon around a lot, my responsibility was more around what I would call mastery. And then that's an entree to the five moments. Dr. Conrad Gaffertson, over 20 years ago, coined this thought process. And he basically said that learners go in and out of one of five moments of need in any given day. It's not a linear thing. It's not a maturity evolutionary thing. It's something that in a given workday, I can have five moments of need of which one will talk, talk about being pretty, the biggest one in a bit. They are when I need to learn something brand new. I don't know anything about brain surgery and I need to get schooled up on it. When I need to learn more, which means I have a base, I've taken brain surgery 101, but I still need to learn new things, but it is in the context of, of having a foundation of understanding. New is not. New is tabula rasa, brand new. Yes. More is, right? Those are often what we deem under the world of formal instruction. Those people do that a lot. That helps with mastery. I built new and more courses for 25 years of my life. But if you've heard 72010, you know, this, this math we like to throw around, yes. the talk of the day, the trend of the day is what about workflow learning? What about all that happens outside of, frankly, moments one and two? Well, Khan would say, well, then there's the moment of apply which is different than getting it. This is applying it or even remembering it in the context of applying it, right? Mm-hmm. What about when things go wrong? It's a derivation of an apply moment, but a very unique one, right? Because I think I know what I'm doing. And all of a sudden things go terribly wrong. How do I rescue myself from that moment? Very different mindset than I just want to apply, remember, and review. And then lastly, the moment of change, which holy cow, I mean, in the world we live in today, that the idea of shelf life of content is absurd in any industry. You know, and the first course I taught in 1983, you know, was a five-day course on Lotus 123. I'll give away my age, right? Five-day yes. course. My gosh, on Lotus 123, five days? The idea of, of in, in IT, for instance, in particular, of any, of any, and I taught it, by the way, for two and a half years. Mm. Two and a half years. Really? The idea of a five-day course on any IT thing is ridiculous. Secondly, the idea of, of the content being relevant or current for two and a half years. Now, so let's juxtapose that on acquisition, on leadership, on 
remaining competitive, on being a good manager. Yes. Come on. I'm right. So this idea of change and helping a learner through learning and unlearning is a real struggle. That's very helpful. Now, among those five moments you just described, it seems to me that the moment of application, when someone has to act on what they know is kind of the hub of learning. Is that a correct way to say it? It is. Or is it more important to focus there on other kinds of learning? Yeah, no, we've asked learners. And it's all about apply, right? I go to training. Why to apply? I don't go to training to master. We as our industry may measure that through through compliance or assessment and stuff. But the learner would say, I don't go to a training class to walk out having mastered it and aware of it. Yes. I come out because I want to go back and be a good acquisition officer. I want to go back and be a good leader. I want to apply it. That is the bullseye for me, and it's what I go in every day to try to do. I go in to try to apply. And I think we'll get our mastery in the doing and in that's, the well, see that, that's, right. well, I mean, that's where workflow learning comes in, right? Yes. For a long time, until this performance support and stuff reared its ugly head, or not its ugly head, reared its wonderful head again, the thought was, well, we're going to, all our domain is, is new and more. That's the classroom, the event, the whole thing. That's where, and, you know, as a friend of mine used to say, my influence stops at the door. Right. I don't go to the, I don't go to the workflow with them. I don't. So what I'm going to do is school them up as best I can and new and more. And when they go back to apply and stuff, you know, I'm going to give them stuff that I hope they do well with. But unless I don't hear from them again, you know, best of luck. Well, the argument now is no, no, no. This whole door has been opened to us intentionally journeying into apply, change and solve. And a learner would argue that although your class was great, the e-learning was terrific. When I'm spiraling and apply, I got new moments. I mean, in a class, it, it, it's a five-minute moment. I never knew there was this thing called pivot tables in Excel. I have no background on that. It's a new moment for me, but guess what? I ain't signing up for a course on it. I'm not going to take a 20-minute e-learning module on it. I need the eight steps to make a pivot table right now. And it's a two-minute intervention, but it is a new moment. Yes. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So the learner would, would argue with us, and this I love your question back to how we started, in, in the workflow learning context, they would say, look, the more you can move those five moments into my domain, because I have them all the time, yeah. and have me not to eventize them, I'm with you. I'll go to the event if I got it. I want to be sure I'm heard in this, that I'm often knocked as being an anti-event guy. I am absolutely not. Where I defend the event is, let's make, let's optimize. I love your word. Let's optimize it in the eyes of our learners. So so if I got to go to five days of anything, five hours of anything, great. But uh, make it worth my while, and I'll go because I don't feel I can get it in the moment of apply. Yes. But back to our point about technology, mm. being able to find a two-minute intervention was unthinkable <laughs> sometime, right? Yeah. In a world where you didn't have Google, and yeah. it was like, okay, I hope there's a book on this, or maybe there's a training yeah. event nearby. Or what about Bill? Everyone likes Bill. Go to Bill. Right. So I hope Bill's available. <laughs> and right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Technology really has been the, the, the tipping point, I think, for this. Yeah, it's very true. Now, you're clearly very concerned about the learner, not leaving them to fend for themselves in their real workaday existence. Realistically, sometimes the formal learning event doesn't work the way you'd hoped in the real world, which I I think speaks to the moment of solving Mm -hmm. and diagnosing or the need for new and more training. But would the organization have to be constantly anticipating that need and, and meeting it with more resources? 
Or does that come from other places? Yeah. Who's that on to, to supply that? Yeah, the onus is kind of, it's, it's, well, I think it's kind of a shared responsibility, which is a new domain for us in that, and I'm going to come back to what, something you said a moment ago. I'm absolutely not an advocate for us throwing our learners in the deep end and hoping they can swim to the side. But I am, I am an advocate for learners learning how to fend for themselves. Yes. Right? And so, but that's a very important delineation because sometimes, again, I'm misperceived and performance support is misseen as this chaotic, out of control SharePoint site. No, no offense to SharePoint. Yes. Right? It's not that. It is, it, Gloria Geary's, in, if you read one of her definition, in her definition in her book of EPSS, the second word is an orchestrated set of, and then it goes on to define it. She pivots immediately on the word orchestration, meaning it's designed like an event is. It is intentional in the way it works like an event does. But the thing that's chaotic is the, is the world in which the learner consumes it. That making sense? Yes. So this idea of anticipation is, it goes back to the idea of, I don't remember if you're old enough to remember these days, but at one time we tried to run it custom training, highly tailored, personalized. These were words we were using, yes, training. Yes. And guess what? We never, we never, because because here's, here's where we fundamentally went wrong. We thought the onus was on us to understand what tailored meant, what custom meant. What performance support teaches you is, no, 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 no. The learner and the thousands of them, let's say, in your bank, decide what that means. Our job is to understand the overarching context in which that works. If we define what, what we call in this d- discipline the workflow well, the task with which a learner performs or could perform in a given day or t- to perform in a particular role, when the learner arrives at those moments, however and when they do, they go in through that door and find the resources that they need. So it's as far as maintenance of that stuff goes, that's where the onus falls on curated content, user-generated content. These are words of the day, yes. right? Ones we're struggling with as an industry because we so proudly owned that for years, right? Agile content design, all these things are coming up. All imply a letting go of control, candidly, and a shared responsibility of the end result. That's causing certain angst in our industry because it's forcing us to look at content management, governance of that content, content stewards. These words are emerging in our industry, and they weren't there five, seven, eight, ten years ago. We were those things, right? And so for it to work and remain current, we've got to get better at these particular competencies. People often ask, you know, what are some pivot points that make performance support workflow learning work? And there's some fundamental tenets. One of them is currency. If I'm at a pivotal point in my day and I invoke this thing you made for me, and it's wrong, but I don't know, right? Then I perform, guess what, poorly, I get fired. Let's go, let's go extreme here, right? Someone dies. Let's get real extreme. That's bad. And the onus is back on that content and its ability to remain current, right? So it's not an issue of ownership of the content initially, which is kind of how we think about used to think of our world. It's the ongoing maintenance of that content. So we as an L&D group may own the creation of that EPSS, the design of that EPSS, but the ongoing currency of the content that's hosted within it may land on a line of business. It may land on bill. It may land on a, on a SME that, you know, in legal, you know, that, that type of thing. Yeah, we know that struggle at DAU. It's oh. one thing to build a couple hundred modules. Now, <laughs> who's going to keep them up? Yeah, um, yeah. So. And it, it was a challenge in event-based stuff. It's an even it's even a greater challenge in workflow stuff because there is no event 
it is an ongoing thing, right? So you can't say, yes. well, we'll release the course in June, we'll do the revision in September, and the thing will have to survive from June till September. Those were the old days of the waterfall days of stuff. Well, no, I'm going to release my EPSS tomorrow, and guess what? It better be current Monday, and it better be current Wednesday. Yes. Right? So this issue of how do we get our arms around that um, effectively is, is a new frontier for us. My first real job in the 90s when I was <clears throat> working in the shareholder services mm. area for a financial company, uh, we didn't have an intranet. We had binders. <laughs> every day, yeah. the, um, the guy's name was Matt. You always look for the new memo from Matt. And what it really became for everybody was a new page to go into your personal set of binders yep. and replace and constantly upkeeping and throwing things out so we don't give shareholders the wrong information. Yeah. I love that example, Anthony, because what it's saying, that metaphorically exists in this digital world of today, but yes. because of technology, it's way easier yes. than what you went through. That's right. Right? And so, so, so it's, this isn't a bad story. This isn't an un, unachievable goal. Mm -hmm. Technology and, and, and the emergence of electronic performance support authoring systems, this is a whole new emerging market in our industry, like LMSs and, and, and e-learning, you know, captivates of the world and stuff. There are now seven or eight, we're tracking seven or eight pretty substantials, EPSS authoring dedicated environments that that's job is to maintain this workflow learning stuff they get this and they they understand that if their systems can't have elaborate content management systems behind them elaborate in their in sophisticated in their architecture but simplistic in their maintenance yes they're not going to work you're not going to i'm not going to buy them i might buy it for the first iteration but again, it's not about the first iteration. It's about the constant. And if, and if that tool is this behemoth to maintain, you know, not going to fly. They're, so they're learning these wonderful ways for Matt, right, the mass of the world, to be one click away from current. That's right. And, That's right. and how great is that? And, and the beauty of this whole thing, Anthony, is a lot of people say, well, what if Matt doesn't want to do this? Matt's doing it now. Mm -hmm. This is what we don't get. These content stewards in the workflow who you want to ask to maintain an SOP for you, Standard operating procedure, guess what? That's what they do for their job now. They keep that SOP current now. Yes. They oversee the sales process now. They are the IT support person of the ERP system now. All we're asking them is, look, can I tap into those resources that you keep digitally current now and host them to my learners in a different way? Now, Bob, we live in an age of disruption, so change is inevitable. Change is the watchword. And we're called upon to learn, unlearn, relearn. Why is this so hard? How can we get ahead of it? You know, it, it calls into play something Dr. Gafferson would say. We have to understand better is something called automaticity. I hate getting jargony on you here. Mm -hmm. But we are a world, we are an industry of certain disciplines and theory. And there's something called automaticity, which adults are stunning at. And that is, automaticity by definition is, is a learner's ability to do something so frequently or something of such high level of criticality or importance of the life that they start doing it without conscious thought. You know, it's the old, I drove home last night and I can't remember the last five turns. That's right. And I've had nothing to drink. Right? I mean, <laughs> it's, right. The, it's the, my gosh, did I do something terrible? But that's automaticity. It's a defense mechanism is really what it is, right? And whether you, you an adult realizes it or not, they've honed it so well because they've learned that it makes them really productive and valuable in life. We're talking about undoing that. <laughs> you know, an eight-year-old, you know, an eight-year-old's one thing when they turn nine and let's kind of, you know, play with the world and, and reorganize their thinking. A 48-year-old, 
is a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. So, but here's the crux. What we've struggled in the past is we've taken people out of the workflow to try to do that undoing. We've taken them out of the context with which automaticity was learned and where automaticity makes sense. And, it, and potentially a change to that automaticity would make greater sense. And we put them in this, in this out of that workflow environment to school them up. We'll up, we have upgrade classes. We have lunch and learns. We have, it's the wrong, it's the wrong way to do it. It's still hard. It's always going to be hard, but automaticity is undone in the context of doing. Not in the context of, oh my gosh, I'll remember those 20 things you just showed me that are different when I get back to my desk. Right. Come on. I get back to my desk, totally different context, totally different workflow, and my cognitive ability to decode that, really, really hard. Because yeah, you're overriding old pathways. Yeah. Right? In the yeah. Brain, and it's got to happen, you know, instead of go here, go there. Yeah. So here's what we do. We say, here's your day. You got 100 things to do. 20 things have changed. Randomly, in those 100 things. Let's write a course on that. Let's get you in this room. We'll zoom those 20 things from the 100, and we'll do them in a flow or an outline or an order. Here's the problem. That outline or order ain't the 100 that I do any, anymore. You've, you've taken that context away, and then you show me all these new ways, and then you go, okay, look, do this Herculean thing, learner. Go back to your 100 things and transfer that. Juxtapose that to the workflow, and 70% of change initiatives fail. Isn't that amazing? It's kind of a light bulb for me, the word transfer, because you're asking the learner. Now it's on the learner to somehow transfer and recontextualize. Well, you know, the the example Dr. Garfson uses is the alphabet, right? We all learned it through the song. You know, that was our encoder, Mm -hmm. A, B, C, D, right? If I said, you know what, we've learned through instructional theory that the alphabet's better learned or more effective for spelling every third letter backwards than the way you learned it. Good luck, right? <laughs> because right. that encoder is so strong, Anthony, for me, that you just totally, you know, so, so to yes. take, me out of a, take me into a classroom and have me write on the board and stuff. Are you really? Yes. You know, so that, that unlearning is, a, is, a, is probably is. the hardest thing a learner has to do. So what's the best way to raise the probability of it happening? Teach it to it in the workflow. Let them do it in the context with which the encoders that I use every day, which is work, happen. And so when I'm, when all of a sudden they come upon that change in the context of doing, my ability to go, whoa, 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 I have to relearn this is way higher. Now it's hard. Way higher though than saying, let me take you out of that context, put you with an expert in a room, take you through the 68 changes that, you know, once you practice, Mm -hmm. but that's, mm -hmm. you know, then I get back. To the workflow, and I confront them there. Really, really yeah. hard. To I'm do. thinking about you know you're suddenly confronted with a brand new timesheet system online. Yeah, yeah. we we do the classes, but it, it doesn't really stick until you're you know going through the paces of the new system, listen to what you said, new pathways. Right? So so Khan would argue, workflow learning theorists, myself would argue, and here's the thing: is anyone going to die from you not doing that form wrong? Probably not. So here's the thing. We'll kind of let, we're going to guide you though. Remember, no, no deep end, no swimmies, you know, not letting you drown here, but I'm going to guide you through the hard knocks of the failure and picking yourself up with a good EPSS and the whole deal. So that guess what? The second, third time you do that form, you're going to nail it. As opposed to, you take it to a room. Well, watch me do the form. Yeah, we'll give you a scenario to do the form. And then you get back out. So, so hard. Yes. So it's, it's a powerful medium. Excellent. Bob, uh, this has been very exciting, very illuminating. I really appreciate your time today. My pleasure. And can I have you back sometime? At any time. It's an honor. Really Wonderful. appreciate it. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.